Hi, this is Jay Chataway. This is Ron Jones. This is Dennis McCarthy, and you're listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and all those places at The GBB Podcast. I am Jamie Green, your host, and welcome back. Today, um, we'll get to it in a second. It's going to be the conclusion of our Star Trek marathon, our Star Trek composer marathon. But first, I wanted to just sort of give a little heads up that this is a special episode This is actually our 200th episode, believe it or not. It's not numbered 200 uh, because we had some of those extra episodes that we we numbered differently, but this is the 200th episode we have put out there into the world for you all to listen to, and I uh, just kind of can't believe that we've done 200 of these. And for the 200th episode, I wanted to change things up just a little bit here at the beginning. What... I I try to do with this show is bring a little light to uh, your life if you listen to it and shine a light on creativity in general and on the people we have on the show and how they uh, approach their art and bring beauty into the world. This is a positive thing, I hope, um, and that's always been the mission. So... It's far too easy, I think, now in 2018 to watch the news, to see world events, to see the way that things are happening and developing and get a little scared and get a little, uh, more than a little, uh, frustrated and angry and disgusted. I don't want to dwell on those things. I don't want to, I mean, those are very important. You know, the world is, is crumbling around us, it seems, at times. Uh, but I, I feel like there we still need to be able to to smile and laugh and have fun and and ha- and be happy. So I want to know what makes you happy. What is making you smile? What are you looking forward to? What is something good in your life? What is something that is just filling your days with joy and happiness? And I want to I want to air those on this show. I want to start off every episode of this show with what is making you happy and and the listeners and and pull back that curtain on, on, and, and let the sunlight in. So send me your audio clips. Record yourself. Let me know what is making you happy, what is making you smile this week or this month or, or this year. Whatever it is, I want to know what it is, and I, we want to let other people know what that, what that is. You can give us a call and leave me a message. We have a Skype. I will not answer the phone, but you can leave a voicemail, and I will, we will use that audio on the show you can call us at 301-825-5653, 301-825-5653. Or you can um, send us an audio. If you want to record yourself on your phone or on your computer and just send me the audio file, you can do that. Email it to thegbbpodcast at gmail.com. Just send it as an attachment, and we'll use that to, to, uh, to open up a uh, future show. What's making me happy this week? I have a long list. I'm, I'm fortunate and, and lucky that I have a long list, but uh, this this weekend is Father's Day, and it's not really a big thing. We don't usually make a big deal out of it, but I have two wonderful kids, and they make me smile and happy every day. Um, and so right now, that's just what in, in summer break is coming up. They're getting out of school, and we're going to have more time together, and we're gonna, we have adventures and, and fun planned this summer. And that's what's making me happy, you know. It, for whatever else is happening in the world, whatever else is crumbling down around my ears, my kids, my family uh, are making me happy. And Father's Day is a day to celebrate what I have and what I am fortunate enough to have. So let me know what's making you happy. Let me know what is making you smile. Send me the audio. Send me your your thoughts. It can be as long or as short or as anonymous as as you want it to be. And we can flip the script and we can start recognizing the good in the world again and stop dwelling on the bad. Okay, moving on to the heart of this episode, 200th episode, the conclusion of our Star Trek mini-marathon with the composers 
This week, we are talking to Jeff Russo. Jeff is the current composer on Star Trek Discovery, but he comes from a long career. This guy is, if you just scroll through his IMDb, it is super impressive. He is the composer for just a ton of different shows. He is the composer for Legion. He's the composer for uh, Santa Clarita Diet, for Channel Zero, for Altered Carbon, uh, Lucifer, Fargo. He actually won an Emmy for his work on Fargo. He has done The Night Of, uh, the miniseries, The Night Of, and he is just, the, 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 the breadth and the diversity of music that he's put out is, is actually pretty phenomenal. And if you don't know, he also is uh, one of the founding members of the band Tonic, who, come on, you know that song, If You Could Only See. If you could only see the way she loves me, then maybe you would understand. That's them. That's Tonic. And so it's where he came from. He's actually still got the band. We talk about that a little bit. Um, they're still around. Uh, he is focusing much of his efforts now on composing, and he's working on a number of different shows at the same time, not just Star Trek Discovery, but we do talk about Star Trek quite a bit. Uh, we talk about how he got the gig, um, which is a really crazy story, actually. It's a very L.A., very Hollywood story. But we talk about a lot, and this is just a great conversation. And I've already talked a ton here at the beginning, more than I usually do. So let's just, just let's, let's just dive into it. So uh, Jeff Russo, Star Trek Discovery, and lots of great music. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It's an honor to have you. Oh, thanks. Pleasure to be here. Um, I wanted to go back, and I'm just curious uh, where people came from and and the inspiration, not, not the inspiration that they got, but the, the support that they got. Did you come from a musical family? Um, you know, it's interesting. I didn't. I'm ado- I was adopted. Oh, okay. So I didn't really know when I was growing up, like, why I had this interest in music, because... Um, my dad, although he loved listening to classical music and loved music in general, was not someone who played an instrument or, or had any musical inclination at all. Mm-hmm. And my mom also had no real musical inclination. As a matter of fact, she is a self-professed tone-deaf person <laughs> um, who would sing to me when I was a child and I would beg her to stop. <laughs> oh, so, no. Um, yeah, so... But from from every all the research that I've done um, about my my biological family is that there was and is um, a musical component to that part of my family. Yeah. Um, my grandfather was a jazz musician in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and on and on. My mother, who was not a professional musician, was you know an, an accomplished pianist and. Um, someone who who was very much involved in playing music all the time Um, and my grandmother was a singer so it was it's definitely in my DNA I would say but not in my certainly not in my um, uh, in my family's in the the family that raised me in their sort of in their vernacular so I I choosing to pursue a career in, in something like music is probably a little it's it's a frightening concept for parents if if they're not musicians themselves did you get a lot of support when you decided that this was something that you were going to take seriously yeah you know i i mean i left i left new york at a really young age in order to to um to pursue a career in music and my mom who you know, at the time was a single mom, was very supportive and, you know, wanted me to do the thing that was going to make me happy. She would have loved to have seen me go to college and um, have a backstop against a sure. failed music career, I think. Um, but I chose another path from that. And um, she was very she was very supportive of that. She was. I, I think maybe... Um, so reluctantly supportive, but but certainly supportive. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah. D- so you're now your wife is also a successful musician. Is is, <laughs> is a musical career or, or pursuing an artistic career, whether that's music or not, is that something that you're okay with with your own kids, or are you also thinking as a parent like, well, maybe they should have a backstop? I uh, you know, 
I don't know the answer to that question, actually. My kids are young still, so I haven't really put much thought into that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that it is difficult to pursue a career in music. There are a lot of disappointments. There are a lot of, of hurdles. There are a lot of ceilings to break through yeah. for, every, for every person, and it's difficult. And um, so I, w- I would make sure that they understand that. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about wanting your children to pursue, uh, pursue a life that will make them happy. You know, and, you know, uh, uh, short-term happiness is not necessarily equal to long-term happiness. And, you know, certainly long-term happiness or the pursuit of long-term happiness can cause a lot of short-term heartache. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's difficult to, it's difficult really to, to, to have an answer to that question. I mean, yeah. I want them to pursue the thing that they really want to pursue. Um, I think that and they will choose, they will make that choice and i will help guide them if i can and certainly advise them on my experience um and on the experiences of others that i've seen and have been a part of um and they'll have to make their own choices yeah what was your first instrument um my very first instrument was violin okay. and that was a very short there was a very short time you know when you're in third grade they say okay pick an instrument right <laughs> And, you know, I picked violin, and I hated it. Um, and then in fourth grade, I moved over to clarinet, and then I hated that. And in fifth grade, I moved over to, uh, what did I move over? Flute. Mm-hmm. And I hated that. And then in sixth grade, I moved over to snare drum in the, in the orchestra, and that was what I loved. Um, and I, I stayed with drums. Now, the whole time playing piano... Um, you know, and never, never having, you know, le- real lessons at all. Yeah. Um, but uh, in the sixth grade, I started playing drums, and then I started playing drums even more and more as I went along. Um, into the seventh grade, into the eighth grade. My father died when I was in the seventh grade, and my mom bought me a set of drums in order to get my anger and aggression out sure. on the drums. Yeah. And I did that, <laughs> much to the chagrin of the neighbors. Um, but, uh, uh, and then I, I got, you know, started bands and was in bands. I was in you know, this band, we were a Cars cover band, and we were nice. playing all Cars songs. Nice. Yeah, it was really, really amazing. And what I realized is the guitar player was getting much more attention than I was. <laughs> and I decided that I wanted all the attention. So... <laughs> I needed to learn how to play guitar, so I taught myself how to play guitar and then stopped playing drums and started playing guitar in the band, and then that was sort of what led me to, you know, starting a rock band and going and doing yeah. that whole thing. It, I, it's interesting, because it sounds like, you know, you, you were saying, you know, you had, p, you had, you played piano, but you never really had serious lessons, and then you, you got the drums and you kind of taught yourself, and then you taught yourself how to play guitar, and... We'll get to this, but from what I understand about your, you know, your composition and scoring is that a lot of that is self-taught as well. Um, was, is, is that, was that by design or just that's the way it worked out? I think that it was just the way it worked out. You know, I, I could pick up a guitar, I could pick up an instrument and just sort of figure out how to play it and yeah. then listen to records and listen to how other people were playing and sort of learn songs. And that's how I learned how to play guitar. Hmm. Um, and the same with drums, you know, I was listening to records and just playing along with records and figuring out how to play. Yeah. Um, and eventually, yeah, that led to, you know, writing music for an orchestra, which I had never done before seven years, six, seven, six years ago, six years ago, well, yeah, 2014 mm-hmm. was the first, first time I'd ever written music for an orchestra. And, you know, you, you kind of just figure it out if, if you know, if you know how to write a melody, um, and, and you know what harmony means, then why not? Yeah. You know, multiple instruments playing multiple things. I mean, I've been writing songs in a rock band trying to figure out who's singing what harmony to what part of the song and what's the guitar doing versus the bass and what's the rhythm doing and why not just apply that yeah. on a much grander scale to a lot more people. And yeah. it should sound right. <laughs> I mean, you know, it might, I guess it could have ended up that it didn't or it might not have, I, I don't know, but it, it, you know, I ended up with my own sort of style of doing that and I I enjoy it. Yeah. It it sounds like you have to have um 
the, the the mindset that I can do this. Like if if you think that well maybe maybe I don't know how or maybe I shouldn't be doing this. That's that's well, just going to become a, a, a crutch. Or not a crutch, I, but I, a, a, a hindrance. It's a double-edged sword. It's it's really it really is a double-edged sword. So on the one hand, you know I don't understand someone saying no, you can't. Mm. That that it almost doesn't compute. Like, well, I, I of course I can. I can do whatever I I try to do. You know, yeah. um, whether it's well, do it well or not well. I I don't know. Like, but I I just I just say I'm gonna figure it out, and then I'll figure it out, and yeah. we'll figure it out. Um, but on the other side of that, you know, I'm constantly worried that people are going to figure out that I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. <laughs> and um, when they do, they'll be like, oh, see, that guy has no idea what he's doing. You know, and, yeah. and you just wait for the other shoe to drop. Yeah. You know, and you, you sort of wait for, for people to figure out that, like, oh, this, is, this guy obviously has no idea what he's doing. Listen to that, you know. Um, so it, it, it's sort of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, hope, you know, feeling like I can do anything that I really want to try to do. Um, and then, you know, waiting for somebody to say, wait, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. Why are we having him do this? <laughs> Thankfully, nobody's ever come along to say that. You know, I, maybe they have behind my back. <laughs> I don't know. Like, but at the end of the day, I don't really, I'm just waiting for it to happen. You know, yeah. who knows when it's going to happen. Yeah. yeah, That imposter syndrome never really quite goes away, does it? I, I don't think it does. I honestly don't. I don't think it does. I think that it's something that we as creators constantly live with. You know, it's, it's a feeling that it's a feeling like, you know, when you create something, you know, you have your opinion of it, but you never know what everybody else is going to think of it. So you just sort of wait and wonder and see, you know? So, so then what led to the jump from successful rock band to composing for orchestras and scores? You know, it was sort of like, it was a gradual, it was a gradual incline, I should say. Um, you know, I, I was, and I still play with my band um, when, when I can. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 2005, we took, we took a, um, what, we, what we thought was going to be an extended break from the band, which was, you know, Emerson, who's the singer of the band, wanted to go and, and make solo records. And, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Dan was playing with the Fray. He was a bass player in the Fray for a mm-hmm. little while. And mm-hmm. um, I, I was like, oh, I got to figure it out. So, you know, I sort of dabbled writing some songs for a record that I never finished. Um, and then one day, my friend Wendy Melvoin, who is of the duo Wendy and Lisa, um, asked me if I wanted to go by their studio to check out what they were doing. And at the time, they were writing the music for a show called Crossing Jordan and a little show called Heroes. Mm-hmm. And I said, sure, let me go check it out. And I, I did. And, and I, watched, I watched them work for like a month. You know, I just sort of sat in their studio and watched what they were doing and, and found that I really enjoyed the idea of writing music to help tell a story. Um, and eventually, they gave me a job um, and you know, assisting them and, and just, you know, helping out around the studio. And then after that, after a while, they asked me to write some additional music for them. And I did that. And it was really great. And then, you know, at that point, I was officially like working on that side of the business. Um, and uh, about a year and a half later, I would say I left that I left there and I just sort of, you know, set up a studio at my house and started trying to find some work. Um, knowing that that was the thing that was really intriguing to me from a career standpoint and a, and a work standpoint. And it really made sense to me. So I, I, I continued to, to try to find work. And then at that point also still then figuring out going back with the band and then sort of really splitting my time between, you know, trying to find a job and writing music mm-hmm. for, for, for film, television or what have you. And, and, making records with my band um and eventually that year 2009 i got i got a job my first television job so you said something there that was really interesting storytelling do you do you see your music as a form of storytelling yeah i mean certainly i've always thought of it that way when writing songs you know um trying to support the story of the lyric Mm -hmm. and telling a telling a story that way and then in transitioning to writing music for for any sort of visual media, um, it, it's also a device to help tell um, the story, you know, and, and help, 
uh, enhance what the person who has come up with the story is trying to say and help the audience to understand sometimes or to misdirect the audience, you know, to help be a part of the storytelling process. So yes, very much so. I feel like, you know, writing music for, for this for this and certainly music that I write is very much in the storytelling genre. Yeah. It, when you talk about film scores and you know, the, some of the most famous themes for, for movies, a lot of people make the comparison that music is just another character. Do you see it that way or do you see it as a, as a compliment to, to the story being told? Or, or... Well, I, I think it varies. I think it, it all depends on the project. Yeah. Like sometimes it is a character. You know, I think that in Fargo... Um, it, it sort of straddles both lines. You know, on the one hand, it does really play a ro- the role of supporting the story and helping the storyline, and also plays a significant character role um, because it can be coupled with silence, you know, and nothing going on but the music and the visuals, and that makes it its own character. So I, I kind of feel like it, it can be used in, in both ways. Yeah. I mean, so... Uh, scrolling through your IMDb uh, is a little mind blowing. Uh, you know, you say that you haven't been in the industry for very long, but just you know, over the last five to ten years, you've written music for hundreds of episodes, dozens of shows, uh, and many of them overlapping during the same time period. The, the logical question here is, how do you juggle it all? <laughs> well, it's, so it's a mis. First of all, it's a misnomer. Okay. I, I, And so when you look at things that are overlapping, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that they were created overlapping. You know, sometimes there is overlap, and that's when things get crazy. Um, You know, I can certainly write on a number of different projects at a time um, because you can jump from one thing to another. And a lot of that actually is helpful to me. Like if I'm ever stuck on something, I can jump to something else and and write, write on that. Um, so it can get very difficult, but mainly there is um, there is some overlap, but they normally I try to have it sort sort of dovetail into one another. Mm-hmm. So like Fargo goes into um, goes into Star Trek, and then Star Trek went into Legion, and then now Legion is going into this film I'm doing, and then this film will dovetail into Star Trek, and then there's other things peppered in and out of there. Now I also have a lot. I have a team. Um, that that can help with a lot of that. I have you know an orchestrator. I have a few assistants. I have a music editor. I have an engineer, and I have a couple people that can write additional music for me. You know, incidental music based on themes and that kind of thing. So, you know, little things can be um, can be helped by collaboration. Certainly, you know, this whole business is a is a business of collaboration. Mm-hmm. When. You- you see, a lot of the shows you've worked on um, are wildly different types of shows. And you, when you, so when you sit down to write, to either start a new project or, or start a new season of something, and you're working on Fargo or, or, or Legion or Altered Carbon or Star Trek, these are very different shows which require sometimes very different moods and tones. Do you, do you find that you have to be in a different sort of headspace, or is the music all coming from the same place? Uh, I mean, I think that generally speaking, you know, music comes from the same place. Um, you know, do I need to try to get into one headspace or another for different projects? Not particularly. I sort of need to shake it, shake it loose for a minute, maybe mm-hmm. go have a coffee and come back. But, you know, I write from a specific place, no matter what I'm doing, no matter how I'm doing it, it's all coming from the same place. Like, I'm, I tend to always look to the emotional center of a, of a story, and that's where I sort of take my inspiration from. You know, whether it's an electronic thing, or it's an orchestral thing, or there's a guitar being played, or it's, you know, I, it's all sort of coming from the same center. It's like... So I can do many different styles of music, but I don't have to sort of put myself in a different place in order to jump from one thing to another. It's like every project sort of dictates what it wants. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a sort of subliminal thing. You know, I look at something and I'm reacting to it in a different way than when I look at something else and I react to that. 
Yeah. When I look at Legion, I react to it differently than when I look at Star Trek. And differently from when I look at Fargo, and differently right. than when I look at Counterpart. You know, it's I, it's it's all it's all coming from the same place, but it's I'm being triggered in a different way right. every time. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Um, something that I find I'm curious about is so when you sit down to write for a film. Um, you've got the entire story laid out in front of you. You either have a screenplay or in many cases when you're coming in to do the music, you've got a final edit or a near final edit to watch. Um, so you you can recognize the tone required and you can nail that with the music. However, when you're writing for TV, it might be all over the place. You might only be able to have access to the first couple episodes and not know where they're going with that season or let alone where you're going to be three seasons from now. How do you find the right tone and theme at the beginning of a show when there are so many unknowns at play? Well, you know, one of the things that I like to try to do is to sort of figure out what the tone of the storytelling for any given project is at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, You're right, things can change, and I have to adapt as those things do, but I, I would like to think that the story informs the music, but the music also informs the story and the storytelling right. devices used. Certainly that happens with um, projects like Fargo and, and um, Legion, simply because my relationship with the filmmaker is very much about how music will affect the story and how story affects the music. And his use of music is a really integral part to his storytelling. So when we think about and talk about what the sound of a show is going to be, we're thinking about it in terms of an entire storyline. So with Fargo, it's usually season by season because each season is a different story. But when we sat down to talk about what, um, what, the, what the sound of Legion was when, before we started season one, we sort of knew, we, we sort of set out like, okay, this is how we're going to want to tell this story from a musical standpoint. This is what we want to do. We want to be able to keep the audience on edge and be able to keep the audience thinking like they don't know what's going on um, because that's what our character thinks. And how can I sort of uh, traverse the electronic and organic thing throughout the entire series? How do we tell this emotional story? We knew it was going to sort of be like that across the the seasons. Mm-hmm. I and I, I I would think that I treat everything the same way. I'm I'm starting to have conversations about what the tone of the next um, season of Star Trek is going to be, mm-hmm. and you know we're talking about what that's going to mean. So I'm sort of setting myself up to tell that story from the beginning of season two now, because season one had its tone. And, you know, if it's going to change, what is it going to be? And I I try to think ahead. So I'm not constantly playing catch up. But, you know, in episodic television, where the story changes every every episode, yeah, you're right. Like, you can sort of set a palette for the sound of the show, but every episode is going to sound different. Yeah. Um, when you're writing for TV, I guess most notably, how often are you writing? This, your answer to this might be, again, it depends on the project, but how often do you write with the intention that the audience should notice the music, that it should, that it should be part of their experience versus just being background supporting the emotions that they're seeing played out? You know, I, I, every project is different, and every project requires a different, um, a different point of view from a musical standpoint and how, how music plays. You know, with Fargo, we do both. There's times when music 
wants to be heard. And then there's time when music just wants to support the tension of the scene right. or the, you know, the frantic nature of the scene or the chaotic nature of the scene. And I think it goes, that goes to say that the same thing goes to every project. Some filmmakers never want music to be noticed. They just want it to, you know, help tell the, tell the story emotionally from behind the scenes. And that's certainly a way to... To, to make films and make TV. Um, I don't tend to write music in that way, uh, but I, I have to when I'm asked to do that. So it, th- there, is no, there is no rhyme or reason. It's whatever, whatever mm-hmm. the story and whatever that particular um, episode and or film is required. Yeah. Um, so in a nutshell, how did you initially get the job on Star Trek? Like, how did that come about? Well, um, you know, I... I, I, I was on a camping trip <laughs> with my with my um, with my son, and or it might have been my daughter's camping trip. I, I don't, but I, both my kids were there. But it was their camping trip, and I was sitting and talking with one of the other parents, and um, you know we were just talking about like oh so you know well, what have you been up to and. Mm-hmm. Um, she had said to me, "Oh, you know, I I know you did the music for the night of. I really loved the night of." Um, and that's so great. How was that? How was that experience? We started talking about it, and you know, then I said, "So, what are you up to?" And she said, oh, "You know, I'm working on um, on Star Trek." And I was like, "Oh, wow, that's awesome!" And she looked at me and she said, "Would you even be interested oh, in geez. in doing in doing the music for Star Trek?" And I was like, Whoa, you, "You're kidding, right? Of course, <laughs> I would be interested in doing the music for Star Trek." So she said, "Well, you should come and meet everybody. You should just meet because you know we're starting the we're starting the um, the search for a composer. So why don't you come in and?" and meet with everybody. Um, and I said, wow, that sounds great. So three months go by and I don't hear anything. And I'm like, well, okay, so that's nothing. (laughs) You know, that's not going to happen. That's, um, that's not a, that's not a thing. Um, but then one day she called me up and she said, so, you know, I want to set up this meeting with you and, and Aaron and Gretchen and the rest of the team. Um, because now we're, we're sort of getting into this. And I said, great. So they, so about a week later I get a phone call like, okay, come on in on this day. And, um, I, I went in and sat down and had a really great meeting with Aaron and, and Gretchen. We talked about the music of the show and um, and what I thought it, it could be. And then, you know, it, it, it's strange. I, I tell the story a lot because when I was in that meeting, um, I had a really sort of very surreal experience, which was we were talking about something, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but about the music of the show and what I thought it was. And then all of a sudden the door to the room flew open and Akiva Goldsman ran oh, in and and said, okay, wait, I just need an answer to something. So can the Klingon ship cloak at this point in time? <laughs> and I looked up and I sat back in my chair and I thought, holy God, yeah. holy fuck, I can't believe I'm in a room where that just happened. Yeah. You know, I, I've been a Star Trek fan since I was a kid and certainly in my late teens when when the next generation was on the air i was a, i was obsessed with star trek um and here i was in a meeting about the possibility of me doing the music and akiva goldsman runs in and is asking a question about how they're going to actually make the klingon ships <laughs> in this first episode of, of of star trek um so that was a, that was very surreal in any case so i that that meeting went on and we we talked more about the music and then and then that was it. And then I didn't hear anything for like about four and a half, four weeks or so, five weeks later. So by four and a half, five weeks later, I was like, oh, you know, I obviously didn't get the job. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody else, like whoever else they were meeting, got the job. I was calling my agent, like, who else were they meeting? And nobody could tell me anything. <laughs> um, so, and then, you know, uh, like I said, four, four and a half weeks later, five weeks later, I got a phone call and, you know, they said, we would love to hire you. And I, it was, it was mind blowing. Wow. I mean, you know, I was totally my 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 mind was completely blown, <laughs> um, because it because of just the way it happened. It yeah, was, it was so very very bizarre. I was gonna say that's that's kind of like that's L.A. life, right? Nobody else goes on a camping trip with their kid and ends up scoring Star Trek. <laughs> well, right. Like, how does that how does that really happen? And c- certainly, it was all it was all like sort of the thing that. I was in the right place at the right time with the right music and the right meeting and the right this and the right that. Yeah. Everything sort of lined up, stars lined up. Yeah. Um, 
And I, I kind of feel like that's the way those kinds of jobs are gotten, you know. Um, the, the, it was, it was uh, the alchemy of everything happening. It yeah. wasn't one thing. It wasn't just this. It wasn't just that. It, you know, they had already been digging the music that I wrote for these couple of projects. They already knew who I was. Mm -hmm. And then I happened to be at the right place to talk to this person who said, why don't you come in? And it was all these right things that just happened. And, and maybe there were some other right things for whoever else they were, they were thinking about. But, um, you know, in the end, it's all about what is the music? What's the music going to be? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, so you were a fan though. You went into this already as a, as a fan. Oh, as a not just a fan, but a, but but obsessed with really? certainly with Next Generation. Yeah, I mean, I was obsessed with Next Generation, and and I after getting obsessed with Next Generation, went back to the original series and and sort of got into that and got obsessed with that, and then, I, you know, um, I watched a little of Deep Space Nine and not so much of Voyager and and absolutely none of of Enterprise, mm -hmm. um, but I'm still obsessed with with next generation to this day yeah well you and me both <laughs> i'm actually uh in the middle of watching deep space nine right now i'd never watched the entire thing all the way through and it's 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 amazing if you've never watched it, i definitely would recommend it <laughs> i watched the first that was the thing you know i watched the first season yeah and it was one of those things where i was very obsessed with the next generation as after it came out in 88 and 88 or 89 or whenever the first season was mm -hmm. and then it got better and better and better and then, um, and then it was ending. Star Trek: Deep Space Nine was beginning, yeah. and I watched a little bit of that. And then, you know, at that point, my band got a record deal, and then I got very involved in in that. Suddenly, you and didn't have as much sudden, time to just sit down and watch suddenly TV. Suddenly, I didn't have as much time. Right, that's <laughs> exactly right. Suddenly, I didn't have as much time, and then I couldn't be as obsessed anymore. Yeah. So I just let my obsession with the next generation be the thing yeah. and when i was on tour on our tour bus i'd watch episodes of the next generation i just never went and really got into the other yeah no next gen's awesome i love it it's just such a good oh, show yeah. such a good show um but when so when you sat down to write the music for star trek the theme especially how much of a tightrope really did you have to walk i mean i'm assuming you wanted to be faithful to this, to the music and the themes that people knew so well, but you still had to create something new right from the beginning. Well, okay, so one of the most difficult things that I have to do in general with Star Trek is walk that line of still being faithful to what the sound of Star Trek is mm -hmm. without being trying to be that, you know, trying to copycat that, and then also forge our own identity and path without going too far away from that. So it's like, really, there's a very small path for that. Um, so yeah, so with the theme, you know, I, 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 as soon as they said that, I started sketching that theme, you know, um, and I, I wrote that basically in the first day or so after they made that phone call. Wow. And then it was just a question of like sending it to them, which I didn't for a while because I didn't want them to think I was overly ang anxious. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I worked on it. And then, you know, I had an original, I had the idea to, to put the courage fanfare at the end of it. Um, because I wanted to tip my hat to the master mm -hmm. of Star Trek music, you know. Um, I know many people think that Jerry Goldsmith is the master of Star Trek music, and I agree that Jerry Goldsmith's music for Star Trek is, is unbelievably fantastic, and I, I, I love the theme from, from The Next Generation, which mm -hmm. was from the theme from the original, from the, from the original movie, yeah. right? Um, but I really believe that the, the architect of it is is Alexander Courage. He's the architect of the sound of the of the of the music. He, the the that horn fanfare and the way he used horns and brass in in that in that theme is is really really the basis for all of Star Trek music, you know. Mm -hmm. Um so I wanted to give I wanted to nod to that and when I discussed that with the with the filmmakers um they were like, "Yeah, why why wouldn't we do that?" Mm -hmm. And I was like, "That's what I said too." <laughs> um so 
it it was also the easiest path to to the you know to merge the old with the new yeah. you know and, or i should say the new with the old um because i i did want to i did want to write a piece of music that had the tone of what our show was which was there's still hope but there is a slight darkness to what what's going on like you know the we were you know the whole there is an amount of conflict involved in in this version of of um our show and a lot of that also has to do with the fact that we look at it from a way more um character-based model than than just story-based you know we do deal a lot with a lot more with um the interpersonal relationships than they had in the original series, certainly. Um, obviously, the Next Generation focused a little bit on the on the interpersonal relationships of the crew members, but this was a lot more of a general, like, how do we all act together in the world? Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to give a little bit of a nod to that as well. Not to mention updating the sound to be to have a little bit more of a modern take on on a theme for Star Trek, and you know. I, I still don't know if I achieved it or if I didn't, but I know that when I when I watch the show and I see our main title and I hear that piece of music, I get a feeling that makes me feel like I I think I got it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, but does that make working on Star Trek as opposed to some of the other shows that you do, does that make it... Mm, I don't want to say creatively restricting, but because you have to still sound like something else that exists. Like you said, there's still a Trek sound that needs to be in there. Even though you're, you're, you're spinning off of that and you're riffing off of that and you're creating a new sound, it still has to be, quote-unquote, Star Trek. Mm. I, I, I agree with that. I, I do continue to have to do that. Yeah. I do continue to have to think about what that means um, and how to write music. And one of the things that we always notice when we're recording the score is I usually record the score in two pieces. I record the strings and the woodwinds together, and then I record the brass in the afternoon. And when we add the brass in the afternoon, mm-hmm. we all sort of look at one another and we all go, oh, yeah, there it is. There's Star Trek. <laughs> you know. <laughs> really great and really nice in the morning but then we add the brass in the afternoon and then all of a sudden it's a Star Trek score and that's you know there are moments that I have like that all the time you know and there's always those little touches that you add to to make it more of a Star Trek score than you know just another sci-fi score yeah um, even though you might put your whole heart and soul into every project that you do sometimes I, I would imagine a job is just a job and you know that the music that you write isn't really going to take on a whole life outside of the episode that it appears in. Writing a Star Trek theme, it's the theme especially though, the writing for that puts you in a very exclusive club. Um, and that theme, before you had even written it, you knew it was going to be put together with Alexander Courage and Jerry Goldsmith and Dennis McCarthy and everybody else who has written a theme that's a very small club. And as a Star Trek fan then, did you feel added pressure because of that? Or was this just like a kid in a candy store for you? You know, so here's the thing. When I first sat down to write it, I didn't think that. Mm -hmm. And I think that was just because I was so overwhelmed with the fact that they had hired me. I never stopped to feel the enormity of what that meant. So I wrote that theme not really thinking that. And it wasn't until after that, like when I was on the podium conducting the orchestra, with, right, you know, playing that theme, that I, I looked around and I was like, oh, wait. It, and the enormity hit me then. <laughs> um, so 
I think I'm lucky. I'm glad that it didn't really, I tried, you know, I guess it didn't really hit me. Like, I knew how important it was to get the theme right. Like, Mm -hmm. but thinking about it in the terms that you're putting, I I don't think I thought about it that way until a little later. And then, then the imposter syndrome kicked in. That's (laughs) when imposter syndrome kicked in. And I'm like, oh, well, wait. (laughs) <laughs> I'm no, I mean, I'm no Jerry Goldsmith. You know what right. I mean? I'm no, I'm no Dennis McCarthy. I'm no Alexander Courage. Um, these people were masters. Yeah. I'm just a dude from a rock band who <laughs> is, you know, writing some melodies and putting an orchestra with them. And it sounds good to me, but, you know, I listen to, um, and I, I go, that's amazing. That's genius. You know? So how do I, how do I fit into that club? I don't yeah. fit into that club. But you do. You um, do. <laughs> well, you know, I, it, you know, the the fact of the matter is, I am now a part of that club, and that is a thing. Um, but it's it's sometimes hard for me to believe. It's sometimes hard for me to 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 sit down and accept. You know, I, that's like I said, that's the imposter syndrome. Like, when are they going to figure out that I'm not? You know, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be in the club. I don't know. Um, I just conti- I just have to continue to not look sideways about that and just continue to write music that people either like or don't. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm just sort of doing it because I love to do it. Yeah. Um, so I did talk to Dennis McCarthy and Ron Jones and Jay Chataway, and the remarkable thing about Star Trek is the exclusiveness of that composer club, you know, and those three guys wrote, I would say 96% of 25 seasons of Star Trek. Um, And one thing that they all said to a T, and it, it, it eased up a little bit toward the end, like when they had a lot of episodes under their belt and, and the shows were sort of on cruise control. Um, but they said that there were a lot of creative restrictions um, on the music that they could deliver. They could not have any themes. There were So there were to be no recognizable themes. They could not use snare drums. They could not use percussion. Um, they were really, at the beginning especially, they were window dressing. Um, and they found ways to play with that and make it work and, and sort of break free from those shackles a little bit. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about what your experience has been like. How much freedom do you have to write the music that you really want? So I have none of those restrictions. Okay. our entire season was all themes, you know, um, and all, and all themes that I think should be, or at least my intention was for them to be recognizable. You know, there's a Klingon theme, there's uh, Burnham's theme, there's Burnham and Ash's theme, there's um, Georgiou's theme, there's Lorca's theme. All of these things come back over and over and over and over again with the hopes that people will go, oh, mm-hmm. there's the Klingon theme. There's the Terran theme when you see the Terran Giorgio, the, the mirror Giorgio. Mm-hmm. And that's a theme that happens all throughout the second part of the season. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping that that's what people come away with. We don't you know. There was that time when all of a sudden the producers of Star Trek, you know, Ron Jones' first season of Star Trek The Next Generation was not at all like the sonic wallpaper that you're talking about. Right. They, they, they had it be thematic. Um, and then they changed that. I guess whoever the, the producers were were like, no, we don't want that to be. We want it to. We want you to not notice the music at all. Yeah. We just want the, the that to be wallpaper. I think that the the directive I got was don't. We're not doing that. We're doing the, what they did in the original series, which was the music was very recognizable. You know, now granted, Courage didn't write all those episodes. Many, many different composers wrote all of those um, all of those uh, episodes of Star mm-hmm. Trek, the mm-hmm. original series. But they were, you know, they were. You you heard music and it was very much a thing. Now, granted, it was a little kitschy sometimes, but that was the thing that was in in the '60s. Yeah. 
Um, and that that sounded, I think then, that sounded very modern and new and, you know, cool. Um, now I'm utilizing way more modern, you know, cinematic movie score techniques in order to achieve our goals. But I think that from from a musical standpoint, they haven't said anything at all to me about don't do this, don't do that. Mm -hmm. You know, the thing we talked about was how do I tell this story from an emotional core? You know, how does how does it feel organic and yet modern? You know, we, we didn't want it to sound like an old timey film score. We wanted it to sound like a modern score, you know, yeah. that you would see in a Star Trek movie or yeah. you would see in any movie, you know, um, and because we shoot it very cinematically. It looks like a movie. I, I mean, I got to see episodes one and two on on the big screen here in Los Angeles at the Arclight, and it was amazing. It looked like it was a movie, mm -hmm. and it felt like it was, it sounded like it was a movie, um, and I think that's what we've been going for. So it was the one sort of unfortunate part of the 90s incarnation of the score for Star Trek is that they did shackle the composer's hands by saying we don't want any snare drum we don't want any recognizable themes they snuck them in i know they did yeah <laughs> i know they snuck them in and and to their credit to dennis mccarthy's credit and to ron jones credit even you know after they told him and he had to make a shift in up in in season two right didn't ron jones did season one and season he, two he did one through right. four he, he one worked through on four. first four yeah so after after season one, they made that change. He made a significant shift in how he was doing the music, you know. Yeah. Um, and then moving forward into into the next couple of uh, versions of the show, you know, they they had to be sort of sneaky mm -hmm. with it, and that's that takes a lot of that takes a lot of talent, you know. Yeah. It takes a lot of uh, a lot of ingenuity too. Um, but yeah, I mean, to get back to that that um, that question, I'm not. I have not yet been shackled by any sort of mandate like that. that the mandate has always been like, let's be, let's be bold. Yeah. Well, it yeah. makes sense for Star Trek. Let's be bold. <laughs> right. I mean, and, and I try, like we try to be bold with the music. Like let's make, if we're going to have music and we're going to use a big orchestra, um, let's have it count. Let's have mm -hmm. it be meaningful like you know we don't have to have music all the time and or even if we need music all the time it can be sort of wallpapery and then we need to have it be meaningful somewhere yeah. you know yeah. how much time do you have to write for each episode um well in season one it was we would spot an episode and about 16 days later we had to be on the dub stage so i have about a week to write it then there's about two or three days to um, to orchestrate the the writing once it's approved, mm -hmm. um, and then we record the orchestra and mix the orchestra. So yeah, it's a full two week process. Yeah. Aside from the themes that you were talking about that can come back um, when certain characters are on screen or when, whether you want to use that as your storytelling approach, how often can you, I guess, quote unquote, recycle music, or do you start each episode with a blank slate? Well, you, you, I, I don't start each episode with a blank slate ever because the entire first season related to yeah. themselves. Yeah. It wasn't like it was a different story every episode. Now, certain episodes had their own mini stories, like the mud episodes, so I needed a mud theme. Mm -hmm. um, and the Povins in episode eight, they needed their own thematic material. But other than that, it's not about recycling because we don't recycle but we certainly utilize thematic material so when something big is happening i'll tip my hat to the main theme if Giorgio and and burnham are having a thing i'll utilize their theme played on a flute or played on something so i'll come back to those themes all the time like that's sort of the point it's just reorchestrating or reanimating or redoing it or playing it in a different way or maybe it's minor here or maybe it's major here you know mm -hmm. um, it's it's sort of trying to score the scene with the music that we have you know so every cue has to be created um but i can i can always tip my hat to whatever themes i'm talking about or wanting to use yeah um you talk about going 
bold with the show and, and being cinematic and them not holding your hands at all. I'm curious, do they are are you involved in any of the story conversations, like where the season's going to go, if only to allow you to drop like musical clues or musical breadcrumbs into an earlier episode for something that might be coming later? Well, yes. Um, so I, I'm not. I'm not consulted. I'm just basically told, right. like this is this is what's happening with the story, you know, in episode twelve. So maybe we want to do something in episode seven that might sort of allude to what's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, that happened in in season one with um, with the Cassilian opera that I had to write, um, and so we we talked about. Um, we talked about what was going to what I was going to have to write for episode twelve, which was this opera piece that Colbert and Stamets, um, Colbert and Stamets share in in this dream sequence, or or not a dream sequence, but when they're in the other world or whatever <laughs> that you call where they were. Um, but in episode seven, I think it's episode seven. Whatever the um, whatever the time loop episode was with mud, um, Mm. uh, Stamets is teaching Burnham how to dance. Um, and I alluded to the feel of the, of the opera in that piece of music. Mm. And that was super unconscious and people probably don't even know I did that, but it, it, for me, drew a through line between that and his um his relationship with Colbert. Yeah. Do you have is there is there like a um like a like a chest of gold at the end of your career not maybe not the end of career or something that you're you're targeting something that you want to move toward that you haven't done yet like something that once you do it you'll be like yep I've made it. I I you know I'm constantly wanting to 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 continue to do new and exciting projects. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know the answer to that. Like, is it one day I will score a Star Wars movie? No, I, I you know, I don't, I don't think in those terms. Um, you know, I just think in terms of, like, I want to be able to continue to write music going forward in my life. I enjoy doing that. I enjoy trying to unlock a puzzle in how to tell a story. And a lot of a lot of writing score is just that, you know, trying to figure out how to navigate a story and tell and help tell it using music and whatever that sound is and finding new ways to do that, finding new sounds and new um, exciting ways to do it with an orchestra or without an orchestra. You mm-hmm. know, um, I've been, I, I've been sort of anti guitar for a while um, in scores simply because I've been playing guitar my entire career with my rock band. Yeah. And, you know, I'm doing a movie right now and the director said, why don't you put some guitar in it? And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, and I'm doing it and then realizing like, oh, I get why this is working. And now I'm figuring out how to work guitar into the score, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's, that's exciting for me. That's the, those kinds of moments are exciting. And I, and I'm, so my, my thought is, like that's the thing that I want to keep doing. I want to keep being energized by the idea of writing music. That's you know that that's the gold I think at the end of the rainbow. You yeah. know, just like to be able to be energized. Yeah. If you had to hold up one score of yours that best exemplifies your career or that you'd want everyone to, li- to listen to, what would you choose? Oh man. You know, the there are. There are four. Okay. There are four. Um, season three of Fargo. Season one of Legion. Season one of Star Trek Discovery, and the score to The Night of. Those four scores, which are have have um, you know a lot of through lines. There's a lot of similarity and a lot of disparity in that um, mm-hmm. because they all all of those wanted me to address an emotional center to the storytelling. And that's where I find myself always writing the best and feeling the best about the work. Hmm. But, but, but those four scores I think are my, like these things are pretty representative of what I really love to do. Okay. Fair enough. 
And yeah. I have one last question, and I will let you go back to making that music that we all love so much. Mm-hmm. What is Star Trek music at its core? You know, it's it, it's an adventure. Star Trek music is an adventure, and and how you mani- how that manifests is there are ups and downs and mids and highs and lows and centers and lefts and rights and you know you never know where it's going to take you. Um, you know the thing that I have li- I've really enjoyed injecting into what I think is Star Trek music is trying to also find an emotionality to it. I don't even know if that's a word, mm-hmm. but but telling the story from a character perspective and and being able to to connect those things thematically that's what star trek really star trek music really is to me and that's it that's the end sad sad the end of our star trek composers marathon um, if you have not already listened to them, please go back. We have three previous episodes where I talked to Ron Jones, Dennis McCarthy, and Jay Chataway about their work on uh, Star Trek through the 90s and early 2000s. Those three guys basically wrote all the music for Star Trek The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise. So among the four of these uh, gentlemen that I had on the show, basically they have single-handedly composed 26 seasons of Star Trek, which is no small feat. <laughs> but it was a phenomenal ride for me. This is I hope you guys enjoyed listening to them. It was just great conversations all the way around. Let me know what you want to hear. I mean, we are certainly open to what you guys want to hear, what kinds of conversations you like what resonates with you what types of people you want to hear us talk to hit me up on twitter or facebook you can get the show at the gbb podcast or you can talk to me directly at the Roarbots. let me know what you want to hear what you like what you don't like that's that kind of thing thanks again for listening for hitting subscribe and coming back i hope you guys stick around we got a lot of great stuff coming up in the future I don't want to give too much of it away, but just stay tuned. You're not going to be disappointed. Take care, and I will see you next week.